0: The reading tonight is taken from John chapter 19, verses 16 through to 22. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus. Carrying his own cross, he went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God.
1: Thank you very much, Caitlin. It is absolutely wonderful uh, to be back in church, in person. Uh, if this is your first time with us, uh, there's a few faces. Well, it's not really faces, it's sort of eyes and hair that I don't recognize. If this is your first time, uh, really, really glad you could be with us. My name is Peter. I'm one of the ministers here at Uni Church. I want to begin by introducing you to a concept and a person uh, or a question and a person. First question is, can you remember a time when you realized that you had got something really 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 wrong? Like really wrong, like the complete opposite uh, of the facts. It happens to me all the time, uh, you can ask my wife, uh, I often get things wrong. Uh, there was one man who realized that not only had he been looking at things wrong, but rather everyone had been looking at everything wrong. His name was Nicholas. Some of you may have heard of Nicholas. He was a bit of an expert. He was around about four, oh, sorry, seven, 700 years ago. He was an expert in maths, in law, in economics, medicine, uh, and astronomy. And that's what he's most famous for, his astronomical uh, discovery. You may not recognize the first name, but his second name you might recognize is Copernicus, Nicholas Copernicus. And he was the first Western astronomer to put forward the idea that despite all appearances, despite all of the evidence to the contrary, the world... The sun, sorry, does not revolve around the world. Rather, the world revolves around the sun. Copernicus realized that although every morning he woke up and he saw the sun rise in the east and set in the west, although every night he looked up at the the sky and the stars appeared to spin around the earth, he realized that the exact opposite was true. It wasn't that all of these things were spinning around us. No, 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 we were spinning around the sun. It's very easy, isn't it, to think that we understand everything that's going on by outward appearances, but only later to find out that the exact opposite is the case. And that's exactly what we find in tonight's passage. We see lots and lots of people who think that one thing is happening, the obvious thing is happening, when in fact, the exact opposite is the case. I'm going to read that passage again. If you have got a Bible on your phone uh, or just a book, that will be great. We're going to be reading from John 19. It's only a few short verses. It says, finally, Pilate handed him, that's Jesus, over to be crucified. So the soldiers took charge of Jesus, carrying his own cross. He went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha, do not write the king of the Jews, but that this man claimed to be king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. If you've had the immense privilege uh, like I have of growing up in a Christian home, going to a Christian church, uh, then many of these details, this entire story will be very, very familiar to you. Jesus lifted up on the cross, this sign above his head, the crowds in front watching this entire spectacle, a very familiar scene. I want everyone to stop and just take a deep breath, take a big, deep breath. Just feel the way that your your chest rose uh, as you took that breath in, and then then it went down again as you exhaled. Whenever I grew up, I thought that that Jesus died on the cross because of the blood that he lost, Uh, uh, from having his hands and feet pierced. But I now know, and many of you will know, that his death was caused by asphyxiation, suffocation. He could no longer breathe. That's how crucifixion killed people, if if you weren't aware. The victim hung there, naked usually, probably didn't have a little loincloth covering the unpleasant bits. Naked, beaten, bloody, spread out for the world to see. They'd gone through the unimaginable pain of those 39 lashes on their bare back, and then having nails, massive sort of four, five-inch nails, driven either through their hands or their wrists and through their ankles, and then hung up for the world to see. I'm not going to ask you to do it now, but if you were to hold your hands up like this and take a few deep breaths, you would soon realize that that actually really hurts. I I think it's your lats. Uh, Jesse or Jeremiah will tell me what the muscle group is. Uh, If you hold your hands up and you take a deep breath, you can really start to feel that burn uh, on your chest here. And as, you, as Jesus hung there, it would have got harder and harder to, lift his, to use his muscles to lift his rib cage up so he could take that breath. And so you'd have to put all of his weight onto the nails in his hands and his feet, excruciating pain. Until eventually he couldn't do that anymore. And then his chest would have slumped forward and he would have died. Suffocated. It was an awful Way to die. It's hard to think of many worse ways to die. If you know the Christian story, if you've grown up in Christian things, you you probably know the details of this story. You know that that's how crucifixion worked. But what's really surprising is that when John writes this down, he doesn't go into the gory details of what crucifixion involved. That's a little bit surprising. Uh, The people uh, of the Roman world that John was writing to, they loved a bit of gore. You only need to go to the Colosseum to see how much they loved seeing blood and guts. But John doesn't go into any of the gory details of crucifixion. In fact, the only thing he says is verse 18, there they crucified him. That's the only time the word crucified is mentioned. Rather than go into all the details of how awful Jesus' death was, and it was awful, John spends all of his time describing what's going on around Jesus. The focus isn't so much on Jesus himself, it's on what's going on around him. Have a look down the passage again. Look at verse 17. First of all, he tells us where Jesus is. He went to the place of the skull. Verse 18, he tells us what's happening either side of Jesus, the two unnamed criminals. Verse 19, there's that sign above Jesus, that inscription, the King of the Jews. And then in verse 20, he tells us what's going on in front of Jesus, the crowds walking past him, heading in to Jerusalem, reading the inscription above him. This passage is full of details about what's going on around Jesus rather than so much what's happening to Jesus. And that's what we're going to think about for these next few moments. What is going on around Jesus? What's going on where he is? What's going on either side of him? What's going on above him? What are the people in front of him seeing? First of all, where is Jesus? Well, John tells us that Jesus carried his own cross to somewhere called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic, he tells us, is called Golgotha. If you uh, grew up on the King James Bible or even just singing Christian songs, you might know that word as Calvary. I learned this week that Calvary comes from the Latin word for head uh, or skull, uh, and Golgotha is the Aramaic form of skull, so it's the place of the skull either way, Um, but in Aramaic it's Golgotha, and that's where Jesus went. Now, if you were a Jew in the first century, uh, especially a Jew who had ever been to Jerusalem, you knew where Golgotha was. If you'd only been there once, you knew exactly where it was, because you passed it every time you entered into the city. You couldn't miss it. It would be like saying he went to, you know, the cranes in Belfast. We all know exactly where they are, but, but unlike the cranes, it wasn't a tourist attraction. It wasn't the sort of thing that people painted uh, and hung on their walls. It wasn't a little wooden carving that they put on their mantelpieces. Is anyone else have one of those little yellow Crayons? Um, no, maybe it's just me. Golgotha was an awful place. It wasn't a tourist destination. It was an awful place because awful things happened there. That is where people went to be executed. It was the place of the skull. It's where you went to die. It was probably the sort of place that, you know, if you were driving into Jerusalem, not that they drove, if you're driving into Jerusalem and the kids are in the back and, you know, they say, oh, what happens over there? You, say, you would try and distract them and say, oh, look, look, there's a bird out there. It's not the place you brought your children to. It's not the place that you would have told your children about. It's the sort of place that decent people tried to avoid. This is where Jesus was lifted up on the cross, the place of the skull. And as he's lifted up on that cross, John tells us that he is not alone. He's with two unnamed prisoners John doesn't give us their names. They were probably nobodies. The Romans crucified thousands and thousands and thousands of people. Uh, in this, th- this would have been very run-of-the-mill. People were crucified every day uh, in the Roman Empire. But here we have Jesus at the end of John's gospel accompanied by two nobodies. If you know John's gospel, you'll know that it starts very differently to all of the other gospels. There's no Christmas story. There's no boy Jesus at the temple. John's gospel begins, in the beginning was the Word. The Word was God and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. That's how John's gospel begins, introducing Jesus, not just as a, as a baby in the manger or as a, as a wise teacher, but God himself himself. In John's gospel, Jesus starts up here, and at the very, at the end, he he finishes down here. He starts as God himself, and now he's surrounded by two unnamed common criminals. He's a nobody surrounded by nobodies. So where is Jesus? He's in the place of the skull. Who is he with? Nobodies. And what's going on above Jesus. It was very common in those days for, uh, because the Romans crucified so many people, and crucifixion was used by the Romans to tell everyone, this is what's going to happen to you if you don't stay in line. So they would have often hung above the, cro- above the crosses, you know, thief, murderer, uh, whatever the crime was that got you um, crucified. But Jesus' charge doesn't actually say that he did anything murderer and thief sort of uh, imply that you're guilty of a crime. No, no, Jesus' inscription says, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. There's no charge there. What that tells us is that Pilate wrote this down for one reason, not because he thought Jesus was guilty of anything. Uh, The previous verses make it really clear that he tried to get Jesus off Uh, No, no, Pilate wrote uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the king of the Jews, for one reason, and that was embarrassment. Pilate wanted to embarrass the Jewish authorities that had put Jesus forward for for execution. He is humiliating Jesus, of course, but even more so, he's humiliating the Jews by saying, this is your king. And look what I, uh, the symbol of Rome, have done to your king. We know, don't we, that the way a king presents, a king or queen presents themselves, sort of it affects how the nations view their people. Uh, Britishness is very much tied up with Queen Elizabeth II, isn't it? Even the, you know, America and their presidents, how their presidents behave, that, that reflects on the nation themselves. What does Jesus say on that cross about the Jewish people, weak, insignificant, certainly compared to the greatness of Rome. And the chief priests, they pick up on this. They say, no, 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 Pilate, don't write King of the Jews. Say, this man said, I am the King of the Jews. Make it really clear that we, we don't agree. We don't believe in him because they see how embarrassing this is. But Pilate says, what I have written, I have written. In fact, he didn't just write it. He wrote it three times, once in Aramaic, once in Latin, and once in Greek. I actually got a picture of it. Jenny, could you put it up there? I thought this would be helpful to look at. I know very few of you will read Aramaic, Latin, or Greek. Greek, But whenever you see it like that, it sort of remind, it reminds me, anyway, of an airport advert. Do you know whenever you get off a plane and you're, you're Maybe you're walking towards the baggage claim and you're walking down that tunnel and there's all those posters. It's usually for HSBC or some big bank telling you how wonderful they are. And there's all these different languages there. And you'll find English there, you'll find Mandarin, you'll find Spanish, because those are sort of the three big languages that most people have some sort of an idea of how to understand. Why do the big banks write their messages, these very, 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 very expensive adverts, why do they write three languages on it? Because they want to make sure that as many people as possible understand their message. It'd be a real waste of HSBC's bank if they only wrote it in Ulster Scots. Because Ulster Scots is not a very well known language, even in Northern Ireland, Uh, never mind uh, anywhere else in the world. No, no, no. They spend lots and lots of money putting it in lots of different languages so that as many people as possible can understand their message. Pilate has done the exact same thing. He's written Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews, in Aramaic, in Latin and in Greek. And that's, that's the order there. And John tells us that everyone walking past, just like walking down that uh, aer- airport tunnel, everyone walking past sees this inscription. They see Jesus. They see who he is. And what Pilate's done here is he sort of organized the language in, um, what's the word? Uh, Sort of like, you know when you drop a uh, stone into the pond and it sort of ripples out? That's the sort of the the language effect here. So Aramaic was the language of that region they're in. Uh, Latin was the official language of the Roman Empire, which is bigger. And then Greek was a bit like English today. Everyone had some sort of a grasp for it. So Pilate isn't just declaring to the city of Jerusalem. He's not even just declaring it to the Roman Empire. He's declaring it to the world that Jesus of Nazareth is the king of the Jews, and look what I've done to him. Look what Rome has done. Look what Rome is capable of. It's a terrible picture, isn't it? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He ends up in the place of the skull, surrounded by unnamed criminals, mocked by the uh, world superpower of the day, suffocating to death. What a picture of defeat what a picture of shame. But remember Nicholas Copernicus. Nicholas stood outside at night, and despite all evidence to the contrary, he thought, actually, maybe it's the other way around. He stood outside watching the stars, and it looked like the stars were moving around the earth, he measured them. And probably when he first measured them, he thought, yep, the stars are definitely moving around. I'm not an astronomer, as you might might tell. He probably initially thought, yeah, that's, that's probably right. But the more he looked into it, the deeper he looked, he realized they're not revolving around us. We're revolving around them. We're revolving around the sun. The sun is not spinning around us, even though that's what it looks like. In order to really understand what's going on with Jesus here, we need to have what people call a Copernican revolution. We need to realize that everything is the other way round. Everything is the exact opposite as to how it looks on the outside. We need to look past the the outward appearance and see what's going on. We need to have a Copernican revolution. And we can, we can begin to see what's going on even in verse 17. Uh, read it with me. Carrying the cross by, the, by himself, he went out to what is called the place of the skull. You see, at first appearance, it looks like Jesus is being dragged out by the Romans to be executed. And at one level, that was true. But if you witness a, a, a crucifixion in the first century, you would know that the Romans had to beat and chase and force people up that hill to be crucified because everyone knew it was coming. But John tells us, and at first glance it just looks like a normal, normal detail, but if you read it closely, he says, Jesus went out to be crucified. He doesn't say they led him out. He doesn't say he was dragged out. He doesn't say he went against his will. No, no, no. Jesus went out. That little word there in the original language is a military term. He went out. Jesus was not driven up the hill to Golgotha. He went there of his own accord. He was in complete control of the situation. And so even from the very start of this passage, if you look really, really closely, you can begin to get a sense. Maybe something else is going on here. While it looks like a great defeat, and that's certainly what Pharisee, the Pharisees thought was happening, it's certainly what Pilate thought was happening, it looks like a great defeat, but in fact, it is the great victory of God's Son. This is everything that Jesus has been working towards. The Copernican revolution that we need to have is that the sun does not revolve around the world, The world revolves around the sun. So let's see what's happening to the sun. Well, where is Jesus? He's the place of the skull, the place of death, the place of judgment. And yet whenever we put on our Copernican lenses, when we realize that this is what Jesus has been working towards, this is the very reason why Jesus came, this is not the defeat of Jesus. This is his great victory. This terrible place of death becomes the place of life, the place where real life can be found, the place where eternal life was won for everyone who trusts in Jesus. This place of shame and judgment becomes the place where we escape judgment, the place where our shame is covered. Without our Copernican lenses on, it just looks like another ordinary death. But when we realize what's going on, when we see that this is what Jesus came to do in the first place, and of course when we know of the resurrection coming on Sunday, this place of death becomes the place of life. What about the people beside him? Jesus finds himself with these two unnamed criminals the innocent one surrounded by the guilty, the name above all names joined by the nameless. Again, this is not the defeat of the Son of God. This is the victory of the Son of God. One of the other gospel accounts, many of you will know this, tells us that one of these criminals, even as he was hanging there dying, believed in Jesus and was saved. Again, This place of shame, this place of namelessness, this place of death becomes a place where life is available to anyone who trusts in him, even a nameless criminal. Even the lowest of the low can be rescued by this great king. And finally, that sign above Jesus, that sign, Jesus, the king of the Jews. We saw that Pilate thought that he was declaring his victory over these pesky Jewish people. If you know your history, you'll know the Romans didn't really like the Jews. The Jews didn't really like the Romans. In 40 years' time, there's going to be a massive war. The Jews are going to rebel. The Romans are going to smash them. And here we have the beginnings, or the continuation, sorry, of that great conflict. And Pilate thought, here's another way I can score one over on these pesky Jewish people. He was actually doing the exact opposite. He was declaring to the world who Jesus was. He wasn't just telling the Jews. He wasn't just telling the Roman Empire. He was telling the entire world, this is the King of the Jews. Anyone could have walked past this sign and understood what was being said, whether you're a Roman citizen or not. Jesus' identity is being declared. Jesus' victory is being declared, even when it looks like he's being defeated. And so in this placard placed by Pilate above Jesus' head, he is declared to be the king of the Jews to the entire world. Can you see that ripple effect? If you know Act, uh, the book that comes right after John's gospel, there Jesus says to his disciples, you will be my witnesses, where? In Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. That's where they spoke Hebrew. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. Here in this sign, we have the very, very beginnings of the Great Commission, the declaration of Jesus' kingship, to the entire world. Pilate says, I have written what I have written. And just like happens so often in John's gospel, Pilate spoke far better than he knew. You might know the story of Caiaphas, the great high priest, not the great high priest, sorry, the high priest of the time. And Caiaphas, what did he say in John 11? He says, this man has to die to save the nation. Pilate spoke far better than he knew. He says, what I have written, I have written, and it will always remain up there. Pilate spoke far better than he knew. Jesus is this great king. When we get up in the morning and we see the sun rise, it really does look like it's spinning around us, doesn't it? you know, the very language, the sun rising. Well, of course, when you think about it, the sun isn't actually rising, is it? We're just spinning. But it it seems so obvious that it's, it's infected the language we use. At first glance, what's going on to Jesus here looks like a great defeat, but this is his great victory. This is his victory over Satan. This is his victory over sin. This is his victory over death what we see in the sign above him is it's not just his victory. It's the beginning of the proclamation of his victory. This drawing of all nations to himself, because that's why Jesus came. That's exactly what Jesus said. Ten chapters earlier, he says, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Because this king of the Jews wasn't just for the Jews. He was for everyone. That's why he had to be lifted up. He wasn't stoned to death, if you know the New Testament, you know, stoning was the most common way of executing blasphemers. but no, no, Jesus had to be lifted up so that he could draw all the nations, even our we nation, to himself. And so I want to ask you, have you submitted to this king? Have you submitted to the king of the Jews? Or are you still resisting his rule, like Pilate was, like the Jewish leaders were? If you're still resisting Jesus, if you're saying, no, Jesus, I'm going to live my way and not your way, you're in big trouble. Earlier in John's gospel, Jesus said, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life for God's wrath, and that means God's righteous anger and judgment against sin, for God's wrath remains on him. If, if you haven't yet submitted to Jesus, then you're going to have to pay for your sin. You're going to have to pay for all of the ways that you fail to love God and fail to love your neighbor. And you might look at Jesus hanging on that cross and say, that's pathetic. What on earth could that possibly achieve? Well, you need to have a Copernican revolution. You need to realize that what looks like Jesus' defeat was in fact his great victory, because that's where he rescued you. If you would only just place your trust in him. And I would beg you not to leave this building tonight without placing your trust in Jesus. In a moment, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. Please don't take the bread and the wine if you have not uh, submitted to the Lord Jesus. But if you want to submit to the Lord Jesus, you can. And I'm about to pray a prayer. And I'm going to pray it in the first person. I'm going to use I rather than we. And you can pray that prayer with me. And if you pray that truly to God, you can know for certain that you have escaped his wrath, that you have eternal life you can join in the great feast of God's people and that foretaste we're about to have in the Lord's Supper, all you need to do is believe because Jesus is victorious and he offers his victory to you so that you don't have to be victorious yourself. I'm going to pray. Dear God, I know that I am not worthy to be accepted by you. I don't deserve your gift of eternal life. I am guilty of rebelling against you and ignoring you. I need forgiveness. Thank you for sending your son to die for me, that I may be forgiven. Thank you that he rose from the dead to give me new life. Please forgive me and change me, that I may live with Jesus as my ruler. Amen.